Smith, living that remote life here at Freightonomics. Thanks everybody for joining us uh, once again every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard. I guess we're on daylight time now, Anthony Smith. Looking I have no today. idea. I lived in Arizona <laughs> for like eight years and I refuse to get caught up to date or take any responsibility for any kind of daylight saving times changes. I just go with the flow at this point. All right. It doesn't matter. Your, your time uh, irrelevant, like time ag uh, agnostic. It's a concept. I mean, <laughs> you're a concept. You're not wrong. I want to argue that, <laughs> but you're not wrong. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Freightonomics. <laughs> for those of you that might be joining us for the first time, I'm Anthony Smith, lead economist and strategic executive producer here at Freightways, and I'm here with Zach Strickland, my buddy, my pal, and co-host here on Freightonomics, and also the Sultan of Sonar and the director of Freight Market Intelligence. Zach, we're here. Yeah. We are here. We are here once again, as much as everybody's trying to resist us. We're keep, we keep coming back. So Anthony, Anthony Smith, uh, you know, we were going to have, uh, market expert Henry Byers on this week, but he had, uh, you know, an illness, uh, situation come up. So he had to bail on us here last minute, but hopefully we'll get him uh, here in the next few weeks because Anthony, I don't know if you've heard about this, you know, ongoing story, uh, or not about the Suez Canal. Have you heard about this? Have you seen this? What's that? The Suez Canal. It's a uh, waterway. Over oh. and there's a bunch of boats go through it. Was it a anyway, big deal? There was a boat. Yeah, there was a boat yeah. that lodged itself and clogged up a huge, huge maritime uh, thoroughfare uh, over there on the other side of the of the globe, and it caused it's it's been such a big deal that it has thrust the the freight environment and transportation, global transportation, into memes, into pop culture <laughs> memes. I mean, it's yeah. It's like it's like nothing I've ever seen before. Where where you know some sort of freight transportation thing. And and here's here's the first one right here. I, I love I love I love memes in general. So this is the first one. My COVID depression and anxiety. Uh, you know, out you know the size of it lodged in this huge canal, <laughs> and there I am trying to dig out of it with this tiny little excavator, which is probably in reality pretty big. Uh, going on a daily walk. I mean, that's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't like, know. I mean, it, like you said, it's one yeah. of these things like we live and breathe in transportation. And of course, Henry Byers would be the perfect one to have. I mean, when we have the title, the term market expert, he is a true and true market expert. I think of Henry Byers, I think of yourself, and I think of John Kingston every time I think of a market expert. But we're looking at this, it's like we live and breathe transportation. So it's weird when we see something like this enter the mainstream real world. We're just seeing, Exactly. Memes left and right. We have another one here, and this one, this one hits home with me. One. Yeah, yeah, this one hits home with me <laughs> <laughs> in terms of my, my procrastination and ability to put off everything uh, as I sit wedged in between two procrastinating uh, situations. I I want like there are a few questions I want answered. I don't know. Like we know the impact of the situation, and we're going to get into some of that. But it's just like. Is there one person that's being held accountable for this? Is there a group of people that's being held accountable for this? Are we ever going to know those names? Are they going to just kind of fade into the bushes like Homer Simpson and that other? Is it GIF? GIF? I don't know. But are they just yeah. going to fade into the background like nothing ever happened? Or is this going to be some kind of special story that we're going to see down the line five years from now? Like, hey, from that Suez Canal yeah. blockage, 
that was me. Mm-hmm. This this one I think this one I think is a, is the crowd favorite, especially for those in that in kind of my generation, and maybe a little bit into your generation, Anthony, where the Ross Geller pivot scene in Friends uh, becomes a, a a big thing, and me and my friends still use this quote to this day. Uh, on a tw- and it's twenty years old. There we go, showing showing some age here. Does this does this relate to you at all, or is this beyond your your age group? So is this Friends? Yeah. See, okay. never watched it. Never, <laughs> never watched it. All right. I All think right. it I was in my me. generation, though. But I just think it just—I skipped it for some reason. So maybe it's an Anthony thing. So I got one more meme. So this thing has been so popular that the that it is it has brought so much joy to people's lives, even though it's a giant catastrophe. People are now calling Joshua Seth, calling for add another ship so we can continue to have these memes as they flood the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, that's the state of the world. <laughs> I love the chaos, but I much rather take this chaos this March 2021 versus the chaos that was March 2020. I'm thinking about like last year; it was the longest month ever. That March would not end; it just kept going on and on and on. And it's just like, in relation, we have a much lighter. It's gonna. It's frustrating because we we can kind of we're gonna get into some of the impacts of, from all of this blockage that's going on, but it's a much better form of chaos than where we were a year ago. Yeah, I, th- I think also we've kind of gotten adjusted to this new chaotic world that we live in, where almost like tragedy becomes like entertainment. Like, I mean, not that that wasn't really a thing before, but it's still like, you know, after the last year, it's you know, even though this is terrible, nobody nobody's getting hurt or anything like that. Uh, all it is is just compounding some, and it it does have some major economic impacts down the road uh, potentially, and we'll break those down here shortly. So, you know, I, I think that if you can't, I mean, all we can do at this point, especially with all these tragedies, is just kind of laugh uh, and have some fun with it when we can. And I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that in this situation. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree. And like you said, there's going to be impacts. I mean, there are already blockages. We're talking <clears> about <throat> LA and how many. It's, there were there's going to be compounding effects, just as you mentioned, and it's just like we get to the point where I'm thinking as an economist, things are going to get like really kind of held back. There's these blockages. We're already behind, and now we're going to be looking at potential inferior goods being pushed on somebody. Like, are you going to foist these inferior goods on the consumers? And so we're going to get into that here shortly. Also, almost forgot to mention, we're on LinkedIn right now. So if you're watching 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on a Wednesday. We are all LinkedIn. Thanks so much for joining us. And so if you want to jump in on the conversation, feel free, add some convo to this whole topic. Um, and I'm going to open up Facebook as well because we're streaming there. So if you're there, nice. if you're watching us, feel free to chime in. Yeah. So let's dive right into it, Anthony. I know we kind of had some fun there in the beginning, but this is a big deal, especially for transportation providers. I kind of want to w- wade through this a little bit. Um, you know, and hopefully we'll have Henry on here in some sort of subsequent show to kind of follow up with it. But I talked to him uh, when he was available to talk. And, you know, basically it boils down to what does this mean for domestic freight? What does it mean for global transportation and, the, you know, the global economy? Because it's all connected. Uh, we've got a couple of stories uh, circulating on Freightways.com, you know, addressing this issue. And I think they're they're both very interesting. Greg Miller has the first one uh, talking about U.S. ports shippers face major fallout uh, from Suez Canal chaos. 
basically, you know, illustrating that there is a significant amount of freight that is impacted uh, as the Suez Canal is blocked. Uh, some of the, uh, you know, major, you know, lanes, especially in the trade war, we've talked about this in the past, where a lot of shippers have resourced some of their goods to Southern a Asia, India, Italy, not, not that Italy's tremendously like in the direct line, but those ships that are on the rotation going through the ports in Italy, et cetera, are on that rotation. So, as, you know, the maritime freight network is just as connected and interconnected as that domestic transportation one. So, you know, just because your freight isn't necessarily on the ships that are blocked, there's all sorts of downstream effects here. And Greg Miller does a great job uh, wading through some of those with some some pretty key stats. Those downstream effects are right. I mean, when I first got to freight waves and really kind of dove into freight economics and the, the, the intricacies of it all and the downstream effects, Henry Byers is one of the guys that I really got in close with because he would talk about all these things coming off over on these ships, these massive containers being brought into the country. What's on those ships? And then that's going to kind of in turn turn into what are we stocking up these warehouses with? What are consumers buying? And it's just like, it's all interconnected. And just as you mentioned, Greg Miller does a great job breaking this all down here. Yeah. And that, now the next article that I think everybody should check out for sure, Lorianne LaRocco writes this one. Uh, she's interviewing, um, you know, the, the president of the, uh, the Panama Canal uh, basically runs the operations there. And he's giving insight into why the Panama Canal is not necessarily as, at as much risk for having a similar situation occur. Uh, in the Panama Canal. Uh, he basically goes on to state, uh, we are a freshwater canal with locks. Suez Canal does not have locks. It is a tidal flow uh, regulated uh, you know, estuary. So the, the Suez moves on the ocean tide. Uh, the soil here is essentially rock. So we dredge day in and day out to make sure we have adequate draft. We are more confined and have defined watershed. So they can control their environment a lot more so is basically what he's saying. So Ships are put on, he goes on to state that he had, you know, everybody has a tugboat associated with it. They are controlling the, fl the flow of the ships a lot more so than they do in the Suez. The Suez, they don't, they don't really escort you through it. You just kind of flow through it. And, uh, he says that they are not necessarily as, um, impacted by the weather events because of this, even though they have significant wind. Uh, you know, for those of you that don't know the, really what they're pointing as the, uh, reason for this, uh, was, uh, you know, significant wind event. So a huge dust storm comes across the Arabian Peninsula there. And it, you know, there was a tanker that actually decided not to go through the Suez Canal, uh, based on some of the weather information that they were given. And they talked it through because all these, these boats are like skyscrapers. So they act like sails, if you will. All that, all those containers being piled up there, you know, on the LNG tankers and all that stuff being piled up on those ships basically act, catches all that wind. So think about how huge these vessels are. The, uh, one of the things that he talks about in his uh, interview is the fact that the Panama ships aren't necessarily as big as the, uh, the ships going through the Suez either. So they have a much smaller uh, berth, uh, much smaller capacity. And so therefore, they're not as exposed to those elements. But um, that's just one way that they're talking about. Like, There's all these different nuances between these two canals that basically says that the same event is much, much less likely uh, to go through the Panama Canal than it is on the Suez. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of this, keeping on the Suez, you were challenging me on some Suez facts earlier <laughs> on. 
So I'm not sure if you have any U.S. facts to share with us. Yeah, I do. I do have some Suez facts. I always like looking at facts. Random knowledge is kind of my shit. So just prepping for the day you go on Jeopardy. That's all it is. Yeah, but I probably won't end up there. But, uh, (laughs) you know, the Suez Canal um, connects the Red and Mediterranean Sea. Uh, It was the construction was started back in 1859 when the Ottoman Empire uh, commissioned it. So I found that to be really fascinating. And you guys can look all this up on the internet. Wikipedia is available to everyone. Um, but I, Why? I just picked out the you? ones that, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, so it reduces the journey from the Arabian Sea to London by about 5,500 miles. Uh, that's huge. You're talking about eight to 10 days with an average speed of about 20 to 24 knots uh, on a boat. So, you know, that's it's about the same, uh, you know, way that it saves the distance going around uh, the Cape of Africa down there, going to the United States. So about eight to 10 days of transit is saved going through the Suez Canal. So it is a significant uh, amount of uh, cost, uh, fuel, all sorts of things to go through the Suez Canal. And they were thinking about this way back, even when the pharaohs were, uh, you know, in charge of Egypt back in, uh, you know, B.C. times when they were building the pyramids and stuff. So they, there's all sorts of uh, interesting facts about the Suez Canal that I had no idea that I had to look up. Uh, it's 120 miles long. We mentioned no locks. The Egyptian government runs it, uh, although it, there's a lot of foreign stakeholders in there, uh, especially in Britain, that do also have a uh, monetary interest in that canal. Yeah, I mean, all these facts, no wonder it's causing such a, how, do, how, how does your generation say a hullabaloo? Is that a, is that a thing? Hello, Baloo. <laughs> what? <laughs> is that what your generation? I don't know, but it's no, it's no wonder it's causing a big deal. And <laughs> I mean, it's going to have downstream effects and impacts, and it just compounds everything that was already happening um, with the West Coast that we were seeing with freight. So that those those images that we saw initially of just all of the ships that were just kind of sitting there waiting and then looking at how, like you said, it's going to have to circumvent Africa now and just kind of have these alternate routes that's going to add these days and days onto the trip. So is how long do you think, I know you're not, you're not Henry Byers, but how long do you think this impact is going to be in place? So I talked to Henry about this and, and basically he doesn't think that there's going to be a substantial impact to the domestic, you know, you know, environment here. Uh, we already have uh, huge uh, backups at our ports. We now have uh, log jams in you know the East Coast ports as well. So all this does, and again, we're talking about a minimal amount of freight in relation to the stuff that comes from Asia and China. Um, you know that comes through the Suez. So it's it's really kind of you know it's I don't want to I don't want to minimize it to the point where it's insignificant. It is a significant amount of freight, uh, especially to those that do have this freight coming over on this boat. But uh, I want to show a chart, actually, the first one here on import volume, uh, you know, and just to put it in perspective of how much freight volume, you know, especially like shipment volume that comes from China. Uh, and then I, you know, if you look at that blue line there, as this is our uh, basically shipment volume, clearing the, the ports, the customs uh, all across the United States coming from China. So everything coming from China, uh, seven day rolling average, uh, 21,000 ships. <laughs> and if you look over there on the left, I have India, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, uh, Singapore, Vietnam, Bangladesh, and Malaysia. So if you add all those up, you're talking about 37% of the 
volume that China is responsible for in terms of import volume. So that's not that's not like insignificant. And not all of this freight that goes that originates in those countries comes through the Suez. These are just the countries that have the potential to send the most amount of freight into the Suez. India, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, of course, that is the obvious trade route. Malaysia, Singapore, Vietnam, you have there's kind of a, you know, a kind of trade off that you have to consider there in terms of shipping it across through the Suez and then, you know, of course, into the Panama Canal or to the West Coast. Uh, so not all of that freight actually goes through the Suez. It's just those are the countries and these are the areas that have, you know, the impact potential uh, going through the Suez Canal. So you can see here, China is still a dominant force uh, coming through the Suez Canal. Uh, and Henry Byers basically states, you know, due to the backlog of vessels that are already present in the U.S., there are likely already vessels waiting to take their place at terminals within U.S. ports in the meantime. Uh, so they're they're going they you know, they're going to use this time to kind of catch up on some of the backlog. Uh, there's stuff that's already moving back. They can speed up their transit times uh, to make up some of this uh, lost time. You know, they lost several days here, but they can they can gain back about a day or two if they really uh you know put the hammer down uh on those boats so it's we're talking about the suez canal and i feel like it's almost like a jerking game for those that might be watching and listening in it's just one of those i keep <laughs> saying suez enough it feels like i'm saying it incorrectly like suez 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 but when looking at this um you mentioned uh you know we work through these backlogs um that we're we currently have do you see any shifts to East Coast or is West Coast going to still stay dominant? Yeah. So, you know, I think to do that, we want to look at volumes by port right now just to see what we have, because we have not we have not actually felt any of this impact just yet in the United States. I mean, you're talking about days of transit out. They had to stop at multiple ports. If you read Greg Miller's article, you'll see a few of those examples. There's a lot of ports that they stop off at with those boats before they get to the East Coast. So you're talking about, you know, I think the Ever Given was actually destined for the United States uh, to be here around April 1st, which is tom uh, tomorrow, uh, for those yeah. of you tuning in live. Um, <laughs> so they could actually not miss that deadline by too many days. I mean, it's still going to have a downstream impact, and there's all those log jam boats behind it. But there, it's, it's not like, you know, we're talking months uh, here yeah. of, of backlog. Uh, but if we look at the volumes by port right now, uh, and I brought this one up because it is, you know, you're talking about we've already had an East Coast preference shift uh, over the last six months as some of these shippers uh, have grown their volumes, you know, trying to get around that congestion out on the West Coast with the ports of Los Angeles, Long Beach. They found alternative ports to go to uh, import volumes through Savannah, for instance, up 30 percent over the last six months. Um, uh, the ports of New York, New Jersey, up two percent. Uh, you know, and this is a, of course, seven day rolling average in a relative chart. So relative growth. So, you know, 30% of Savannah isn't necessarily the equivalent of 30% in, uh, in, you know, Los Angeles. So Los Angeles on the chart before this was, was down 5%. And you can see here in this next one is that, you know, Savannah has seen a significant, uh, surge of freight volume. So this is the customs, the import shipments coming through the ports of Savannah, uh, you know, laid over the top of our outbound tender volume index. So the outbound tender volume index there is there in orange. Uh, the custom shipments there in blue. You can see there's a pretty deep connection in Savannah to uh, import volumes and uh, and domestic truckload freight. Uh, as those import volumes have grown, so has the truckload freight, and that has led to a pretty significant 
uh, event in the Southeast. You saw, you know, for those of you that watch our midnight market updates and, and all our other media uh, involving what the, the trucking market's doing, we had a pretty, uh, you know, unexpected jump in our outbound tender rejection index nationally here over the last week. Uh, I talked about how it might be contributed to Easter and all this kind of stuff, but really, the volume surge in Savannah and Atlanta, and Atlanta and Savannah are very connected, obviously, as a lot of that freight moves into the Atlanta market on the end, uh, you know, the rail comes into Atlanta, drays over and gets on domestic truckload there. But, um, and, and so the most significant increase in tender rejection rates in the United States over the last week have been in Atlanta and Savannah. And if we pull up our Atlanta rejections here, it's pretty clear cut. So, Savannah outbound tender rejection rates. This is the rate at which carriers reject load tenders from shippers. So shipper sends over the request that, hey, man, I got some freight that's moving from Savannah to wherever in the United States, Columbus, Albany, et cetera, Dallas. Uh, the, the carrier's basically like, nah, man, I can't, I can't cover you today. Almost 50% of the time, one out of every two loads in the last week out of Savannah was being rejected, uh, on the contracted freight side. So, you know, if you look down there at, you know, Atlanta in the blue, Atlanta jumped up to 27%. Atlanta, of course, a much bigger market than Savannah in terms of overall freight potential. Uh, but still, one out of every, I mean, that jump there from 30% to almost 50% happened in, in just a matter of days. Um, again, capacity is impacted across the country with stuff like this. I pulled up Ontario there and the purple line just to show that, even Los Angeles felt, you know, some of this capacity disruption with tender rejection rates jumping up there as well, you know, 3,000 miles across the country. Yeah. And just real quick, I have to give a quick shout out to our viewership right now on LinkedIn. We have uh, Rachel Jackson saying loves his information. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rachel, for joining us today. Also, I have a quick shout out for our team, our media team. We have one of the best media teams in the business. You know, shout out to Jimmy Carden, Cody, Crystal, Frazier, Good Game, all of them. But Looking at this, Zach, it's nuts to see that nearly 50% is being rejected within that lane. It's absolutely yeah. nuts. Yeah, and the Savannah, Savannah is the third largest port by volume in the United States in terms of inbound TEUs or 20-foot equivalents. Um, and, and it's, you know, shippers are obviously scrambling to try to get around this. And just as soon, you know, all of the all those volumes, you saw the growth on the East Coast there. All that was happening before the Suez Canal <laughs> was blocked. So they were trying to get around it. So the shippers are doing the best they can to get the freight into the country, trying to get around the current situation. And then what happens? But a log jam happens halfway around the world. <laughs> uh, some high winds knock a boat into the, you know, the sand there. And yet another log jam to, uh, to the, uh, the overall, you know, supply chain management organization point. So, you know, we mentioned that, you know, the, Domestic freight volumes probably aren't going to have see that much disruption. And, and if we do, it's going to be a few days to a few weeks uh, before we see that played out, ironed out. The congestion's already there. Are they going to miss a few containers here and there? Probably not, uh, according to Henry Byers. Uh, the biggest risk uh, he stated, really, and this was echoed in um, you know the, uh, the Florian Larocco article as well, that transportation, this is just another reason that transportation costs, transportation rates, specifically on the maritime side, are going to stay elevated. Uh, mm -hmm. So if we look at the transportation rates, the Freitos Baltic Exchange uh, daily index here that measures spot rates for 40-foot equivalents coming from China to North America's east and west coast, that east coast rate there 
really high, 5,700. The West Coast rate, though, remains extraordinarily high in relation to the East Coast rate. So, you know, they're still trying to push, you know, the, the freight forwarders and, and, and the maritime providers are still trying to push freight to the East Coast from China, according to that rate there, because it costs so much money, almost as much money to ship it to Los Angeles than it does to ship it to, you know, Savannah. And and points like you know New York New Jersey on average. So this is a situation that's not going to resolve itself quickly, more than likely, especially when we see something like this. Eventually, you're. I mean, if you look back at May and June of last year, rates to ship to the West Coast were around fifteen hundred dollars, thirteen to fifteen hundred dollars, and now they're up over five thousand dollars. That is just insane. These costs are going to get passed along, and you know. To kind of summarize this whole thing up, we are talking about basically this is going to get absorbed into consumer prices eventually. We talked about inflation the last time we were on here. Yeah, there it is, inflation. This is this is this is just one more step on our way to inflation. This is not a good thing uh, for it to sustain (laughs) this long. Like this is just I know transportation providers and everybody's watching the maritime uh, carrier stocks go through the roof, uh, et cetera, but. This is this is not a long term sustainable event. Uh, you know, it, it these kind of increases you're talking about a 500 percent, nearly a 500 percent increase year over year and in, in shipping rates. Now, these are the spot rates. They're not the uh, contracted rates, which are much lower or they tend to be much lower. Um, so but still, th- this is just indicative of the overall. We've seen it in trucking. Uh, these rates are too much to absorb uh, that quickly. Uh, so, and, and I mean, at some point, you know, this also the shippers, the, the companies that are ordering these manufactured goods are also not going to have the money to keep spending at this rate. So yeah. eventually it will catch up. And, and I think that's the real long term risk here. You agree? That's more the that's more your speed. <laughs> Big time. And and I'm glad you mentioned that because I've been talking about inflation for some time. And, and it's like not a lot of headlines are covering this. And I I get it. We had core inflation that was released not too long ago. I think it was just yesterday up 0.1% core inflation. But from previous shows, as I mentioned, I don't think we're going to see traditional inflation as you know we may have expected just with the printing or increasing of money supply. Of course, it goes into the velocity of money, how much it's being exchanged, how quickly it's exchanging hands, savings, you know, what people are putting money into, um, the production rate, things like that. But when we have, so one thing that's going to get released tomorrow is going to be the ISM PMI, the Institute for Manufacturing Purchasing Managers Index. We have a chart for that. And so when we look at the ISM PMI, it's going to be really an indicator of what's happening um, for the overall manufacturing segment. And so within the ISM PMI, we saw an upward movement. And so within that index, there are components. There's a new orders component. There's a production component. There's a pricing component, things like that. The pricing component is up into the 90s. And that the way you read that, say you're a purchasing manager named Ethan. And you make, uh, you know, you're making these purchases and you have this survey that you put out on a monthly basis. And that anything over 50 is indicative of expansion. Anything below 50 is indicative of contraction. And now it's over well over 50. It's in that 90 mark. So I'm going to be watching prices closely because it's been ramping up month after month after month. And it's only so much that can be done with this kinds of increases. And we're seeing a shortage in supplies. Um, commodities, and it's not just in within manufacturing, but housing as well. Look at housing prices, existing home sales, new home sales. These things are up. Other assets are up. We're looking at stocks. You're looking at people putting money into Bitcoin. People are spending, 
and inflation is happening. It just not might be happening in the ways and people were anticipating with the increased money supply that we have going on right now. Yeah. So, you know, we definitely don't have enough time to dive all the way into that detail, but it is like, I mean, it's inevitable, right? I mean, we, we, I was looking at the PPI last a few weeks ago, and that's the producer price index, uh, you know, on, on how much it costs to make these goods that people are ordering. It, it's starting to rise a lot faster uh, here over the last couple of months than it has in the previous year at all. And of course, the CPI has been a little bit more stable. But yeah, I mean, what do you think? I mean, is this a really significant risk to our economic recovery? I definitely think it is. I mean, if it's not done in a very precise manner, you know, we're probably going to have like we're going to have additional stimulus payments, but we also have employment starting to come back. So we saw the most recent jobs report showing an increase. So finally, we're seeing a little bit of leveling or a comparable story with initial jobs claims. So good to see. But as we see more people come back to work, more people and jobs, we're going to need to see that stimulus kind of taken back. And now with that, we also need to see some kind of program put in place for those people that may be evicted. How can they begin those repayment programs? How are they going to be re uh, protected as opposed to having to owe everything all at once? And so it's a really fine line. It's going to be a balance. And this has been Freightonomics. <laughs> yeah, I mean, bring out the ukulele, Anthony. Uh, so download the Freightwaves TV app on podcast players everywhere. Look up Freightonomics or look up Freightcasts and get every Freightwaves podcast. And Anthony, I'm so glad to see you and your ukulele. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you all next time.